Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for how wonderful you are. Uh, As we set about to study your word, Lord, and especially in this passage in Amos, I pray that a holy fear would strike each and every one of our hearts as we consider uh, your wrath, Lord, and your judgment. Uh, But not only that, Lord, but also your mercy toward your people, uh, both ethnic Israel as well as your people uh, whom you call from the nations, Lord, whom you call through the blood of your Son. Uh, What a tremendous offering, Lord, for the sins of sinful men. And so as we consider these words, Lord, um, I pray that you would help me, a sinful Weak vessel, Lord, use the gifting you have given me wisely, Lord. May I declare only what you yourself have already declared, Lord, and may I not waver from it. I pray for this congregation, Lord, that um, your words would rejuvenate them, fill them up, um, and satisfy them for this coming week as they are apart from the body, Lord. I pray that you would uh, strengthen them through this word, be comforted through this word and this encouragement, Lord, and that they would behold Christ in all his beauty. And we pray all these things in your son's precious name. Amen. Whenever I've uh, had the privilege to preach, we've been going through the minor prophets, looking at a whole book, if it's really short, um, or a chapter or two, if it's a longer book. And we're in famous Amos today, and that's just how the cookie crumbles. Uh, That's enough of that. I got that out of my system. We can move on. Uh, The book of Amos, it's one of the longer minor prophets clocking in at nine chapters, so obviously we can't go through the whole book uh, because you probably would attack me if we went past five hours or so. Uh, But we will briefly walk through the entire book just to get a flavor of its themes and its message uh, because we can't understand the conclusion of the book, which is where we're going to be at, without understanding what comes before it. And we know this. We can watch a movie trailer that has an ending scene in the trailer, but we won't really know and understand that it's from the end until we've seen the movie. And then we go back and watch the trailer again, and, and we realize, wow, they really gave away the whole plot in it. We need context to understand not just the ending, but the whole book. And I think it's especially needed for conclusions. And so if you'd like to turn to Amos 1, that's where we're going to begin uh, before I just break down our structure for today. So we walk through the book. We're going to spend a couple minutes on this first verse of chapter 1 to begin with because it gives us the historical context as well as it introduces us to the main man, Amos himself. And so we read in chapter 1 of Amos, verse 1, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. I've said this for each minor prophet we've looked at, but each one has a unique feature that sets it apart from the other minor prophets. They all share similar themes, they overlap in many ways, but they are unique. Uh, Habs had his argument with God, Joel had a locust invasion, Jonah wasn't even sent to God's people. Hosea's was his marriage, and Amos's unique feature is that he was not a prophet nor a son of a prophet, but was a shepherd and a farmer. And he was called not from his, or to his homeland, but to the kingdom of northern Israel from the southern kingdom of Judah. And not only this, but he is the final prophet sent to northern Israel. And Amos is it. He was sent around 760 B.C., and Assyria would invade in 722 to destroy the kingdom. And Amos' first words to this nation of idolaters is one of judgment, as we would expect. Uh, But what we don't expect is that he begins not against Israel. He begins with judgment against Israel's neighbors, uh, Damascus, um, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, the Ammonites, All of these nations that were idolatrous and wicked and harmed God's people, who were their enemies. And so God lists nation after nation and a little piece of the judgment pie that's coming to them. And going into chapter 2, even the southern kingdom of Judah, who we wouldn't expect to be in this list, is listed here. In verse 4, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, just as he said to all the other 
nations that aren't in covenant with God. Their hands aren't clean. They too have rejected the laws of Yahweh. And so they too will face his judgment. And so by this point, I'm sure the northern Israelites were feeling pretty good. At this point in Israel's history, and just so we're clear, from here on out, when I use the word or the name Israel, I'm going to be referring just to the northern kingdom. Uh, That can get kind of confusing because they're called Israel, and yet the people of God are called Israel. Um, When I speak of the people in general, I'll, I'll try and make that clear. But at this point in Israel's history, they are kind of at their peak as far as the, the northern Israel goes. After the heights of David and Solomon, following the split of the kingdoms, both nations degraded a lot. They lost land, they lost wealth. But at this time, Amos is sent to Israel. They had enjoyed quite a bit of peace for a while. They had reclaimed good portions of the land that Solomon once had under his kingdom. And they were prosperous. They were happy. They were feeling like they were truly blessed by God and have his favor. And so maybe they thought their idol worship, their disregard for his law, their mistreatment of one another was really working out for them. Because after all, here comes this prophet from Judah calling out all the other nations for judgment and even Judah itself. And we're going to see this as we get to chapters 8 and 9. But as Israel enjoyed their prosperity and believed that they were blessed, they presumed upon God's grace, and thought that no disaster would come upon them. They were prideful. But Amos declares in chapter 2, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four I will not revoke the punishment. And then from there on out, the vast majority of the rest of Amos's message to them is laying upon them their guilt and the judgment that is coming for their guilt. They weren't receiving the blessings of God all those years, but were in fact storing up his wrath against them. Their guilt is immense. We don't have time to go through all of the details, but they had social injustices, which spring from a natural departure from God's perfect law, to corrupting prophets and Nazarites, the supposedly the supposed to be holy men of the nation. And so God tells them in chapter 3 that they're going to be devoured just as a lion devours a lamb. And just as a shepherd only receives back a leg or a portion of an ear, so, that, so will their shepherd only receive that. God already hinting that this judgment that is coming isn't going to be completely total, but that he will save a portion of them. And what has made Israel sin all the worse is that as chapter 4 describes, God has given them sign after sign of their need to return to him and to trust in him alone. From prosperity to weird weather patterns to famines. It has all been purposed for them to repent, to turn to him. And yet they refused, each and every one of them. They were blinded to what God was doing. And so God gives this terrifying remark in verses 11 to 13 of chapter 4. He says, I overthrew some of you, so some of their cities, as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, Thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, Yahweh the God of hosts is his name. It's terrifying. What should have been a hopeful, a wonderful hope, of being able to meet your God has turned into a terrifying prospect of destruction. This is the Lord that they've rejected after he lovingly called them to repentance in numerous ways and through many of his prophets, and yet the Lord still mercifully calls his people to them. This is the Lord's mercy as well. Because in chapter 5, though he describes the terrible judgment that they will face, he also tells them his desire for them. That this wouldn't come upon them, but that they would seek him and live. And there's so much here that we could comment on and point out, but we have to keep moving. Just notice those themes. Israel's pride, Israel's presumption, God's holiness, his glory, his mercy. And we read in verses, verse 18 of chapter 5, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. So at this point, they had heard of Joel's prophecy several years before of this coming day of the Lord. 
that will bring with it the judgment of all of God's enemies and the enemies of God's people. And of course, they're pumped to hear it because they presume that they were God's people being, of course, people of the covenant. And I'm sure they were just as pumped when Amos began preaching of the judgment coming to their enemies. God is on our side. He's blessed us. We are prosperous. We are his people. We can't wait for this day of the Lord to come. And that theme continues into chapter 6 of this presumptuous pride on their behalf. I was born an Israelite, so God is totally for me. It doesn't matter how I live because I, I was circumcised. And throughout Amos, God ta- constantly tells them, you utter fools. My wrath that is coming on my day is going to be poured out on you most of all because you were privileged enough to have my law, my revelation, my desires for you, and you spurned them all. You rejected them all, and you rejected me to my face. The utter audacity that they would believe that God is for them when they are harming their fellow Israelites, the most vulnerable among them, and they are literally bowing down and putting their faith into idols. And so at the beginning of chapter 7, Amos has given a series of visions of Israel and God's intended judgment for them. And after them, for the first couple, Amos is like, God, this, this judgment is far too great. Please forgive them. That is until this final vision of this plumb line against the wall. And a plumb line, if you don't know, is a string with a weight at the bottom when dangled from the side of a building can tell if the building is crooked or not for the builder to then be able to fix because you don't want a crooked building. That'll collapse. It lets them know what needs to be fixed, how, how badly the construction was, or the, how badly the wall is. And, and the clear implication from this vision in chapter 7, verses 7 through 9, is that Amos is now seeing just how crooked and irreparable Israel has become. They are so off the mark, so visibly bent, that Israel no longer says to the Lord, forgive them. This is too great. No, he's, he's in line with the judgment that's coming for them. And Israel's sin, Israel's depravity, the crookedness of Israel, it all culminates in this last half of chapter 7, where the priest of one of Israel's idol temples comes to confront Amos and tells him to return back to Judah because no one's going to buy his message. Just leave. We're not going to hear it. This is the spiritual leader in Israel, and sure, he's the spiritual leader of an idol temple, but he's still wholesale rejecting the word of the Lord. And he is spirit, Israel's leader. Israel ascribed the name Yahweh to the golden calves that they set up in Bethel and Dan. And that's the crux of the matter. They think they're worshiping Yahweh in the worship of these idols, but they're not. And they don't even realize that they're doing anything wrong. They think they're faithful to him. They think they've obeyed his law. They think that they're in his covenant and good graces. They're so spiritually hardened and blind that they can't even realize that they're breaking the very basics of the law. This isn't even one of the commandments like don't wear two kinds of fabrics or don't eat shellfish, right? Where where even we go, what are you doing there, Lord? This This is commandment number two. Do not create or bow down to idols saying that they are me. This is the most basic as you can get. But not unbelievable to us that they would be so blind. Because do we not see many people today claim the name of Christ and yet champion causes that are 100% in contradiction to his revealed will? Again, basic commands that are broken with no piercing conscience, no hint of guilt, spiritual blindness, spiritual deadness, spiritual hardness of heart that is evident, though they can't see it, and though they claim to be members of the covenant. That's just fallen human nature. That is unredeemed man who suppresses the truth of God and exchanges the truth of a lie and fools themselves into thinking they are right with God. Because the Israelites knew that they were members of the old covenant, they thought that made them immune to the justice that wickedness deserved. Well, Amos is here to give them the final warning that that was not what the old covenant meant. Yes, they were covenant members, but that didn't guarantee their salvation. The old covenant wasn't like that. It gave them tremendous privilege and blessing in knowing God's standard and having his revelation and being told over and over again of their need to believe in him and trust in him. But it, the old covenant, circumcision and the sacrifices did not provide salvation, especially when the worship of God was so corrupted as it was. 
And so chapter 7 closes with this judgment on the priest Amaziah, which leads into the conclusion of the book in chapters 8 and 9. The end of Israel is coming, the end of the pridefully presumptuous, and the end of a feeble feeble kingdom. But in those endings, we'll also see hope. The hope of the promise of God that he will restore his people, and that he will provide salvation to not only their descendants, but also to people of every nation through this coming king who would repair the fallen booth of David. And so now let's read chapter 8 and hear God's words to his people. This is what the Lord Yahweh showed me. Behold, a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. Then Yahweh said to me, the end has come upon my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The songs of the temple shall become wailings in that day, declares the Lord Yahweh. So many dead bodies, they are thrown everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will not forget any of their deeds. Shall not the land tremble on this account, and everyone mourn who dwells in it, and all of it rise like the Nile and be tossed about and sink again like the Nile of Egypt? And on that day declares the Lord, Yahweh, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth and every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord Yahweh, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of Yahweh. They shall wander wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of Yahweh, but they shall not find it. And that day the lovely virgins and the young men shall faint for thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria... And say, as your God lives, O Dan, and as the way of Beersheba lives, they shall fall and never rise again. So this chapter, it begins with Amos receiving another vision, this one of a basket of summer fruit. And at first blush, that sounds lovely. Who doesn't like a nice gift basket, right? Especially like the kinds with the little chocolate turtles in them. Uh, But then Amos is given the meaning of this basket. It's not a a gift basket. It's not something you, you would want to receive. The meaning in verse 2 is that the end has come upon the people of Israel. And so how do you make that connection between a basket of summer fruit and the end? Well, what God is doing is he's doing a play on words. He's given this vision to Amos of a basket full of summer fruit because the Hebrew word for summer fruit sounds similar to the Hebrew word for end. And so God gives Amos this vision and he asks Amos what he sees. And Amos essentially says that he sees the end. Amos sees the end of God's people, Israel. Now let's let that stand for now and not undercut it with what we know comes at the end of the book. When Israel first heard this declaration, they didn't know what God would say next. And so let's just try and empty our minds of that and let the weight of this statement take its full effect. The end has come upon my people, Israel. It's not the nation. My people, Israel. I will never again pass by them. This is Yahweh, God, telling this to his covenant people. This is just like the message they received from one of the first prophets sent to them, Hosea, when God spoke through him and said that they were no longer his people and that he was no longer their God. Here this message is again at the end. God is consistent to his word. No more compassion, no more patience. Their time has run out. Israel has not repented, and so now their end is coming upon them. And the rest of the chapter describes that end. The songs of the temple. And remember, we're in northern Israel, so this isn't the temple in Jerusalem. This is likely the temple in Bethel that housed one of the two golden calves. Those songs will become wails in the day of his coming judgment. Mourning because of the massive amount of casualties in the invasion of Assyria. This is the terrifying wrath of God. This is what sin deserves and more. 
It will finally come upon them due to their moral decay and their depravity. A depravity that's described in verses 4 to 6, and that's really what the religion is in these verses. They view the celebrations and observances that God gave them as burdens and inconveniences that get in the way of their illicit gain. They can't wait for them to get over so they can go back to ripping off the poor among them. These festivals and feasts that were purposed to celebrate what God had provided and would have instilled in them a heart of generosity toward their brothers are instead seen as an obstacle for oppressing the poor. Man, I can't work on the Sabbath. I can't wait for it to get over so I could go back to making money. Now, with how they view the Sabbath, you might be surprised that they're actually keeping it, but it shouldn't be that shocking to us because, after all, people need to keep up appearances of obedience. And here's a good place for us to to check our hearts in all this. Why we might not be waiting for Sundays to be over so that we can go back to oppressing the poor, what is our view of the gathering of the saints? and of the Christian ordinances like baptism and the Lord's Supper? Do we take joy in those things, or are they things that we do just because we think we have to do them to keep up appearances, or because we think we're earning God's favor through them? Are they just inconveniences that get in the way of what we really want to do with our day? Well, let me tell you, there is no point in keeping up appearances because God sees the heart. And he's seen Israel's heart, And he swears to them in verse 7 that he will not forget their deeds. But what is this pride of Jacob that he swears by? The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob. Well, what can Yahweh swear by but Yahweh himself? You make oaths and swear by something greater than yourself out of fear and reverence for that thing to hold you accountable. There is nothing greater than Yahweh, and so he swears by himself. He has been and always will be Israel's pride, Jacob's pride, whether they're faithless or faithful. And so what he's doing in this swearing is emphasizing the surety of the next statement. God is omniscient. He neither learns nor forgets in a literal sense. He forgets the sins of those who trust in Christ, but that's a different type of forgetting. And so by swearing by himself, he is heightening that surely, surely I will never forget any of their deeds. This is salvation cut off. Our hope, as well as the old covenant members' hope, is that God would remove our sins from us, not holding them against us and thus effectively not remembering them any further. That's Psalm 103, verses 8 to 13. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. That's wonderful. It's a wonderful promise, a wonderful hope. But notice that last part, that his compassion in the removal of sin would be for those who fear Yahweh. Israel did not fear God because they worshipped other gods. It was evident in their lives. And so their sins will be remembered forever. The land will tremble and they will be like the Nile. Every year the Nile would flood and then it would rise and then fall and leave utter destruction and devastation in its wake. That's how Israel is going to be. As sure and devastating as that was, that is what Israel will be. In verse 9, And on that day declares Yahweh God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. They will know that this destruction has come upon them by the Lord because it will be accompanied by supernatural signs that only He can accomplish. I don't believe that this is eschatological, though I do wholly believe and recognize that the historical Assyrian invasion and exile did point forward to that coming day of the Lord, the final day of the Lord, when the sun won't just go down, but be darkened completely, as Joel described. But for Amos's audiences, audience, this will be a day of bitter mourning, a mourning like that of losing an only son. An only son was a family's only hope. It was their future. He would be the one who inherit, inherited everything. He would be the one who would take care of his parents in their old age. He would be the one who worked. And so in this, God is saying that they will mourn on that day as if they have no future and no hope. They're completely cut off. But that's not all, because preceding that end will be a famine. Not a physical famine, 
But a famine, as described in verses 11 to 13, of, of a spiritual nature. As I mentioned in the introduction, Amos was the last prophet sent by God to northern Israel. That's what's being described in these verses. There will be no more warnings. There will be no more revelation. There will be no more guidance. There will be no no more help from God. And this isn't something that will go by unnoticed, even though they've so far removed themselves from, from the word of God. They will feel it. They will notice it. They will desire the word of the Lord as they desire food and water as soon as they realize that it's suddenly gone from them. And though they search for a fresh word of the Lord, some sprig of hope, some mercy, the thing that revives the soul, as David put it in Psalm 19, they will not find it. It is gone. As Charles Feinberg says, how perverse is the nature of man. When he has the word of God, he despises it. When it is withheld, he seeks it because of the severity of the chastisement. And here's another heart check for us. As with your view of the gathering of the saints, what is your view of the word of God? Are you like the psalmist of Psalm 119 who delighted in God's testimonies as as much as in all the riches of the world? Is it your delight and your joy? Though you're prone to wander from it, is it your utmost desire to never wander from it? Do you take to memorizing it and to not forget a word of it, not taking for granted that you may not always have the same access to it that you have now? Do you have the view of Christ that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God? Do you believe that? Is that evident in how you view the Bible and you use it? The word was taken away from Israel. And even their most hopeful and vigorous, their virgins and young men, succumb to thirst. That's how devastating it is to have the word ripped from you, to not have access to it. And then God ends this section by pronouncing that those who swear by their idols will fall and never rise again. And so looking at this chapter as a whole, what it is, is a demonstration of God's consistent character. It's terrifying, and yet it is consistent. 700 years prior, God declared this to his people. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 8 to 10, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And in case they didn't get it, he says this in chapter 7 of Deuteronomy, verses 9 to 11. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to the face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. The premise is simple. I have chosen you, Israel, because I love you. I am faithful. And if you love me in return, shown in your faithfulness to me, thus reflecting my character, you will know peace and rest and favor for a thousand generations and beyond. But if you hate me, shown in your faithlessness toward me, then I will treat you just like I do all the other heathen nations on the face of the planet who do not love me. The Lord is faithful to those who are faithful to him, but he will also forsake those who forsake him, even if they claim to be a part of his covenant community. God is still consistent to his character today. What does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 to 33, in the context of the inevitable persecution that will happen to his disciples for loving him? Well, you can escape persecution for loving Christ if you just say you don't love Christ. But Christ tells them this. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. I will be faithful to those who are faithful to me, and I will forsake those who forsake me. Likewise, Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 13 says this, The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. 
If we endure, we will also reign with him. That's wonderful. If we deny him, though, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, some take that last part, where it says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful in a positive sense, meaning that he is faithful to his covenant promise to the believer that they cannot lose their salvation in Christ, which is true, you can't. But I don't believe Paul is referring to that in 2 Timothy. This last statement in 2 Timothy 2 is paralleled with denying Christ and being denied by him. The one there is described as faithless. If you have no faith, then you have no salvation because salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. When he says that God remains faithful, it means that he is faithful to his character. He cannot deny himself and so will forsake the one who has forsaken him, even if they claim Christ. If you leave Christ, what else is left for you? What hope do you have left? There is no hope left. The Israelites in Amos' day, Amos is telling them, if you abandon Yahweh, what is left for you? You have nothing left. You have pridefully presumed on your perceived status, and now the reality of their condition is coming home to roost. And verses 9, or chapter 9, verses 1 through 10, gives us that destruction and the end. It says, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there my hand shall take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord of hosts, the Lord Yahweh of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the earth and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. Yahweh is his name. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares Yahweh? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaphtor and the Syrians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord Yahweh are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob declares Yahweh. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. So after his previous vision of the basket of summer fruit in chapter 9, Amos receives a final vision from God. He sees the Lord standing beside the altar. Remember, this isn't the altar in Jerusalem, but likely the temple referenced in the previous verse is the guilt of Samaria, likely referencing the temple at Bethel that housed one of the golden calves, and the Lord is standing beside the altar there. And so the altar was the place where the sinner would go and seek the favor of the Lord and entreat his forgiveness, which they were doing in Israel through the mediator of a golden calf. Every offering made on that altar was not a pleasing aroma to God. It was not passing over their sins, but an abomination that added to the cup of his wrath. And now that cup is full, and God commands that the capitals be shook until the thresholds shake and shatter on the heads of all the people. What he's commanding is that the capitals, which were the the tops of the pillars that held up the temple, would be shook until the whole temple collapses and kills all the idol worshipers in it. Just completely level it until it's nothing but rubble and bone and blood. And anyone who might escape will be killed by the Lord. And it says, I shall kill them by the sword. Until none of the idolaters are left, there is no escape from the wrath of the Lord. It hits its target with 100% accuracy without fail every single time. That's what verses 2 through 4 emphasize, which are very reminiscent of Psalm 139, where David delights in the Lord's omnipresence and omniscience. Though there he's doing it in a positive manner. 
There is no escaping God. Whether that's in the positive sense of not being able to wander from Him, if you are one of His, secure in Christ, or in the negative sense of not being able to escape from His wrath, no matter where you might try to flee. You can't escape His gaze, whether you try to go to the land of the dead, Sheol, or try to go to heaven. I don't know why you'd go to heaven, that's where His throne is, but you never know. Uh, You can't go to the highest point on earth or the lowest, God's eyes will see you. He's not like the eye of Sauron that can get distracted so that two measly hobbits can go cast the ring into Mount Doom. He's not that weak. God's eyes are fixed upon all things at all times. And for Israel, it was fixed upon them for evil and not for good. And that sounds surprising. What does it mean that God has his eyes fixed on them for evil? God is good. He's not evil. How are we to understand that? Well, God is wholly good. We saw that in Habakkuk. His eyes are too pure to even look on evil. James tells us that he can't even be tempted by evil. That's how good he is. Here in Amos, God is not saying that his motives are evil as if his intention is to sin against evil. I mean, Israel, who who is evil, so that works. But he cannot sin. Evil is not being used here in a moral sense, but in a destructive sense. You don't call a hurricane destruction good, right? You call it evil, even though the hurricane itself isn't morally evil. It's just a natural disaster. It's the opposite of blessing or of a good that can happen. And again, this is consistent with God's promises and character. He told Israel this would happen all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 63 to 64. And as Yahweh took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so Yahweh will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. He's going to delight in this. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. And Yahweh will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. You want to worship gods, other gods so much? Go ahead. You're not going to be doing it in my land, though. His justice and holiness demands this, whether or not they are members of the old covenant. As verse 5 says, he is the Lord Yahweh of hosts, of angel armies. This is whom they've abandoned. A being whose very touch melts the earth under his holiness and the weight of his being. How burningly pure he must be to do that. His home is in the heavens, its foundations are on the earth, and it is he who controls the seas. He is not only omniscient and omnipresent, but he is also omnipotent. Yahweh is his name. How transcendently glorious is he. This is the one whom they've set themselves in opposition to. It's a heart check time for us. This morning, are you in opposition to this one? Read that description and fear. This is whom our sin is against. Let us never think that one so great as this takes our sin lightly. He then declares to his chosen people in verse 7, Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel? declares Yahweh. Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaphtor and the Syrians from Kerr? What's he saying there? It's kind of confusing. Well, Israel had gotten prideful. They'd gotten haughty. They'd gotten presumptuous. They presumed on the Lord's grace and love toward them. They believed that just because the Lord delivered them from Egypt and entered into a covenant with them, that they didn't, it didn't matter how they lived from then on out. They thought that as long as they paid lip service to the laws of Yahweh and called their idols Yahweh, that it was all good. We're worshiping the same God, after all. They viewed their covenant status, not as a means of obedience and blessing, but as a means and excuse to sin, to live carnally, thus proving that they weren't truly God's people at all. They didn't act like God's people. They didn't look like God's people. They didn't think like God's people. They didn't have an affection for God as God's people do. They looked and acted and thought and believed and lived just as the heathen nations did that surrounded them. They viewed their status as God's people as an immunity against God's judgment towards sin. So I know I just did one, but here's another heart check for us. If you claim to be united to Christ, redeemed by his blood, and a partaker of the blessings of his new covenant, how do you view your covenant membership? How do you view God's grace toward you in Christ? Do you see it as an opportunity and means to sin? Because Jesus says this in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And Paul in Romans 6, 1-4 asks and answers this question, What shall we say then? 
Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can, you, how can we who died to, to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. True covenant members, those truly redeemed by the blood of Christ who love Christ and love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, do not view their covenant membership as an occasion in blank check to sin, to do the things that God hates, to do the things that Christ hates. They are grieved by their sin and their desire is to look differently from the world and to look differently from their former wickedness. Their desire is to look more like Christ, who is perfectly obedient to the Father. Israel, though, they viewed their covenant membership as an opportunity opportunity for the flesh and to live like the heathen nations that surrounded them with none of the downsides. God's going to destroy them for their sin, but because we're in his covenant, we're good. And so God tells them, do you really think that I'm just sovereign over you guys? I'm the sovereign Lord over all the earth. Sure, I delivered you out of Egypt, but I also delivered the Philistines out of Kaftor, and I delivered the Syrians out of Kerr. Now, don't miss how striking a blow this is to Israel's pride. The Philistines and the Syrians were two of Israel's fiercest and most hated enemies. You can read First and Second Samuel for that. God is telling them, where's your grounds for boasting now, Israel? And he says, behold, the eyes of the Lord Yahweh are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground. You can't get much more of a stricter and severe judgment than that. But though the kingdom of Israel was a heathen nation and and was to be destroyed like any other heathen nation, it was made up of people who belonged to true Israel and had citizens whose descendants would belong to true Israel. And so the people wouldn't be completely wiped out. They weren't totally a heathen nation. As Paul says in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, speaking of Israel's rejection of Christ and separation from God, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. The Old Covenant community was a mixed community. It contained people, a majority most of the time, who did not know the Lord, who did not love the Lord with their whole heart, who were unsaved and thus bound for God's judgment, and yet they were covenant members. But also within that covenant community, God, by his grace and mercy and love, love always preserved a remnant of people who were saved, who were faithful, who loved the Lord their God with their hearts, soul, mind, and strength, and who loved one another as themselves, and who would inherit the promises of God. And even among the unredeemed in Israel, God had predestined that they would have descendants who would, once, who would at one time be members of true Israel. And so while the kingdom of northern Israel was to be destroyed, and it is destroyed, God did not and will not wipe out the household of Jacob. And this is the declaration of Yahweh. He will preserve a remnant through that coming Assyrian invasion, even as he scatters his people among the nations. He says he's going to shake the house of Israel among the nations as one shakes with a sea, but no pebble will fall to the earth. What he's doing there, he's describing a refining process. You've harvested your grain, but it's mixed with useless dirt and chaff and rocks. And so you put it through a sieve or what we think of a colander. And you shake it so that only the useful kernels drop out and all that's left in the, in the sieve is, is rocks. God's refining of his people is perfect. Not one pebble will fall to the earth as God does this among his people. And this refinement is for the purpose to bring them to this future in verses 11 to 15, which describes not only Israel's hope, but our hope as well as Gentiles. Let's read the end of God's message to his people, Israel. In Amos, in that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares Yahweh, who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel, 
and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says Yahweh, your God. So it begins with, in that day. Well, what day is that? Well, it's the future from Amos' day after this judgment and destruction that's going to come upon the northern Israelites. God has already promised that though the kingdom will be destroyed, the people will not. And now he promises them something even greater than that. This is the tremendous mercy and faithfulness of God to not completely abandon his people, but to fulfill his promises to Abraham and to David and to all the faithful covenant members who are called by his name. In that day, he says he will raise up the booth of David that has fallen. Well, what is this booth of David? Well, this is a picture of the Davidic dynasty at the time. Once strong, once powerful, once majestic, once glorious, now a broken and disheveled booth, or we might think of a tent. In Amos' day, the tribes were divided under two kings, and though the vast amount of this judgment that is described in this book is directed toward northern Israel, Judah's hands aren't clean. Judah hasn't fared much better throughout the years, and remember, they too were called out for judgment in chapter 2. The Davidic dynasty is weak, it's broken, it is a husk of its former glory. But God here promises a restoration. He has not forgotten his promise to David that David would have a son on his throne for all eternity. The restoration and rebuilding of this tent pictures the reunification of all the tribes back under the, the Davidic king and the enjoyment of a prosperity the likes of which they have never enjoyed before. But this Davidic rule is not just contained to the land of Israel and ethnic Israelites. Verse 12 says that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares Yahweh, who does this. This is picturing a kingdom that spans the entire earth and is made up of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation on the face of it. Similar to the old covenant community, this would be a mixed community. But unlike the old covenant, this community would not be a mixing of unbeliever with believer. All those in the new covenant are saved but a mixing and uniting of Jew and Gentile. This was the mystery that's revealed in the new covenant. And just as the Lord declared the scattering of Israel among the nations, he declares this, and so it is sure, it will happen. As the angel Gabriel told Mary in Luke chapter 1, verses 28 to 33, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. In verses 13 to 15 picture that kingdom. A day yet future for the land of Israel and the people of Israel, a restoration and prosperity of their people in the land under their Messiah king. But that king has come and he is reigning today. Now, I don't know if there are any uh, Jewish people here today um, or descendants from Jewish people, but this is your king and this is your future if you turn and recognize your king. Because Jesus, the son of David and the son of God, has come. He has lived. He has died. He has risen again and has has ascended on high and is calling all people everywhere to repent of their sins, to trust in him and his sacrifice and be transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his glorious light. The first words of Jesus' ministry were, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This command of repentance and offer of salvation and entrance into his kingdom is for all. Jew and Gentile alike. And it is an offer that is only apprehended by faith, not through works of the law, not through circumcision. In the early days of his church, as the first Gentiles were being called into the fold and community of God's new covenant, there was confusion over the Gentiles' inclusion. And Pastor uh, Peter, just, uh, Tim, just read for us that. Did, did the Gentiles need to be circumcised? Did they need to become Jews first before they could become full covenant members and be included among God's people? Did they have have a second class of citizenship under the Jewish people? 
And so the council was held in the mother church in Jerusalem with all the apostles and elders of the fledgling church there to figure this out. And after hearing Peter's testimony of the conversion of the Roman centurion Cornelius and hearing Paul and Barnabas' testimony of the gospel's acceptance among the Gentiles in Galatia and Pamphylia, James, the brother of Jesus, what we might call the lead pastor of the Jerusalem church, stands up and addresses the council pointing to this passage in Amos. And he concludes that this time has come. That God is now calling the Gentiles by his name. They are his and they are his not by outward ritual or by works of the law, but by faith alone in his son. Christ reigns on high today. The booth of David is not yet fully repaired. Christ does not yet sit on the throne of David on earth, but he is king of the earth. And his enemies are being made into a footstool for his feet at this very second. Now is the time for salvation. Now is the time to recognize his lordship. Now is the time to enter his heavenly kingdom that you may enjoy his earthly kingdom in the age to come for all eternity. Put your hope solely in him, obeying him as your king, casting aside your faithlessness, your prideful, presumptuous way, heeding the warning of Psalm 2 by faith. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Catch this last part. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for this word in Amos, this judgment that you have brought on northern Israel, Lord, for their sin as a lesson to us in the future of it, Lord, to not go that route. Help us to heed this warning, Lord. Help us to fear your holy name and turn to Christ, the means of salvation, Lord, and the king of the earth. Let us recognize his lordship, Lord. Let us recognize him as Savior, believing in our heart that God raised him from the dead and confessing with our mouth that that he is king, Lord. Let Let us trust in him alone, not in our works. Let us not view that salvation and that grace as a means for sin, but let us obey him with our whole hearts, Lord. Let's not be prideful, but humble ourselves. Give us your spirit, Lord, that we might discern these things and trust in him in a more full manner. And help us to to live holy for him. Pray these things in your son's precious name. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.